I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Coming up in this hour, it's a man who became the youngest syndicated political cartoonist at 19. It's a musician who knows what love isn't. And it's the world's most forthcoming advice columnist saying, I receive a lot of letters like yours. Most go on at length, describing all sorts of maddening situations and communications in bewildered detail. But in each, there is the same question at its core. Can I convince the person about whom I am crazy to be crazy about me? The short answer is no. <laughs> the long answer is no. It's, it's... And music from Jens Lechman. It's all coming up on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. And poet Scott Poole, who will sit in our audience during the show. He's going to write a poem about all of the life lessons that he's gleaned during the hour. And of course, we have music from our house band, led by Ralph Huntley. Thanks, guys. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we'll have political cartoonist Jack Oman on the show. He has some thoughts on uh, presidential debates through the years, and we'll also have author and part-time advice columnist Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl has evolved the form of the advice column with Dear Sugar. It is a column on the literary website The Rumpus, where people write to her with heart-wrenching questions, and she writes heartbreaking responses back. The first recorded advice column was created by English author John Dunton over three centuries ago for his publication, The Athenian Mercury. But I'd imagine that there have been advice columns in some form for much longer than that. We'll probably discover some drawings on cave walls at some point that we'll translate loosely to, Why Thor no commit? I help kill mammoth feel Thor may have unrealistic standards based on what Thor bring to table. <laughs> help. No, seriously, help. I'm being killed by a saber-toothed lion right now. I just, I think it's strange that in a culture where we usually reserve deeply personal conversations for those who know us best, we're also willing to open up the most complex questions of our lives to complete strangers and trust that they're going to be able to tell us what to do. But if you read the questions that most people send to advice columnists, you get the sense that they already know the answer. They just don't want it to be the answer because it's hard or it's sad or it's devastating. Once during a particularly strained period in a relationship, I found myself buying a book called Too Good to Leave, Too Bad to Stay. I went out into the mall parking garage and I got in my car and I looked down at the Barnes & Noble bag sitting in the passenger seat and that's when I knew the relationship was over. 
I didn't need to read the book, just the title. <laughs> and the fact that I'd picked it up and I'd taken it to the counter and I'd bought it. <laughs> it just, all of that just told me everything I needed to know. So if you find yourself eyeing a copy of He's Just Not That Into You, he's probably not that into you. And if you buy a book called Deal Breaker, when to work on a relationship and when to walk away, you're probably dating someone with whom you have a deal breaker and you just need the book's permission. Just save yourself the $14.95. You know, we buy these books and, I, and we send these letters to strangers because we don't trust our gut, and we should. We should trust our gut over everything else. And the, the problem is that we just can't hear our gut over everything else. We can't hear our gut over the voice telling us that we'll never find anyone else because of that one weird toe on our left foot, or our friends telling us that it might be time to settle, or our hormones, which frankly should never be consulted when it comes to romantic decisions, <laughs> but are often the only advisor around for months and months until we finally stop listening to them and are left staring, stunned, at a sleeping wrecking ball we just toasted a bagel for. So, so we write a letter to a stranger asking the question that our gut is screaming, but we know the answer. We just are really going to miss sharing that bagel. Next up is our first ever musical guest from Gothenburg, Sweden. We hope the first in a long line of Gothenburg guests. <laughs> He's a world traveler, a former bingo hall employee, and a songwriter who can fit more words into one lyrical line than just about anyone. Not that it's a contest, everybody. His songs are poignant and romantic and oftentimes quite funny. Imagine Bell and Sebastian doing autobiographical musical stand-up, and that's Jens Lechman. His latest record is I Know What Love Isn't on the Secretly Canadian label, and it will make hopeless romantics of all of us. Please welcome Jens Lechman to Livewire. <laughs> Still have your holding that old clunker's golden. How about we take it for a spin up and down like it? Listen to music and look at girls. I want to know if we have the same taste. Do you like blonde sunburns? The cocoon or the coquette? Don't pull over just yet Look to the left There's a 9.5 down the street And to my right A perfect 10 sitting in the driver's seat I don't know what love is But I know what it is I I know what it is So let's get married I'm serious But only for the citizenship I've always liked the idea of it A relationship that doesn't lie About its intentions how it doesn't apologize or anthologize all the rules and ideas we fill our heads with. Hey, do you want to go see a band? No, I hate bands. It's always packed with men spooning their girlfriends, clutching their hands as if they'd let go. Their feet would lift from the ground in a I don't know what love is 
Live Wire Radio. For more information on Jens Lechman, go to jenslechman.com. That's Yen with a J. Hello. Welcome to It's a Piece of Cake. Can I help you? Hi there. Uh, I need to order up a cake for my mother-in-law's birthday, and uh, geez, you got a lot of crazy cakes up in here. Thanks. We're a metaphorical bakery. Metaphor what? Yes, we construct cakes and desserts that describe a subject by asserting that it is, on some point of comparison, the same as another otherwise unrelated object. Are you a wise ass? Literally or metaphorically. I don't understand the question. It doesn't matter. Can you describe your mother-in-law? She's built like Howie Long. She throws shoes at your head when she's hungry or mad or happy. I never heard her say a nice thing to anyone except the guy who sells her cigarettes. Hmm. How about something like this? It's a red velvet Russian Federation Series 4 dump truck. It's made with a rare Serbian flower that's aggressive yet has heart. And what's that in the bed? That's hope. Hope for a better relationship with her son-in-law. It looks like manure. It's chocolate ganache manure. And you know what grows in manure? Relationships. Whatever. I need it Wednesday. Next! Yes, I was in last week and ordered this cake for my friend. You'll have to be more specific. It's shaped like a cockroach. It's for a friend who lost 75 pounds. Well, what does a cockroach have to do with weight loss? Well, 75 pounds is a big change for her, right? Right. Cockroach. Kafka's metamorphosis. How can you not see it? It's right in front of your face. Next. Yeah, uh, I'm here to pick up an order for David. David. Remind me of your metaphorical situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm breaking up with my girlfriend, Dolores, literally. <laughs> right, got it right here. Take a look at that. Um, this says, I'll love you forever, Dolores. <laughs> How is that supposed to help me break up with her? Well, we're actually branching out into irony. <laughs> yes, it says, I'll love you forever. But you see how the whole thing's in quotes? Well, that... <laughs> That, that doesn't seem like ironic so much as sarcastic. It's all in the delivery, David. Okay, okay, but I paid for a metaphorical cake and I didn't get one. Oh, no. You see those daisies all over the cake? Daisy Buchanan. The great Gatsby doomed love. Am I the only one who studied semiotics at Brown? Yes. Plus, daisies are a spring perennial and dead by winter is winter, David. Love's death looms. This isn't what I wanted. And now you're just starting to creep me out. It isn't what you wanted. It's much more. This is a multi-layered metaphorical cake with a side of irony and lemon butter cream. I should charge you double. I'm leaving. I'll break up with her myself. Cake for dinner again. Next! That was Trisha Ferguson, Ryan McCluskey, and Chris Harder. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that knows it would like Breaking Bad, but just can't add another show to the queue right now. 
maybe after community is canceled. Coming up, political cartoonist Jack Oman, author and part-time Dear Sugar Cheryl Strayed, more from Jens Lechman and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. has been an editorial cartoonist at the Oregonian for the past 29 years, with his work syndicated to over 300 newspapers. Like most of us, he slacked off a lot in high school, working as a political aide for the Minnesota Democratic Farm Labor Party and working at the Minnesota Daily. At 19, he became the youngest cartoonist to be nationally syndicated. He's written 10 books, including An Inconvenient Trout and Angler Management. <laughs> and last year, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. This year, the debates have played a huge role in the presidential elections, here with a historical perspective on the whole thing. Please welcome Jack Oman to Livewire. Nineteen days after I was born, on September 19, 1960, the first presidential debate was held in the studios of WBBM-TV in Chicago. This debate between Senator John F. Kennedy and Vice President Richard Nixon is perhaps the most storied presidential campaign event in American history. Vice President Nixon seemed to think it was an actual debate, so he showed up with his file box full of note cards and thought it was all about the inherency of argument and factual refutation. In truth, it was an audition. <laughs> Kennedy showed up looking like a 1960 version of a polo ad. And <laughs> And Nixon showed up like he'd just gotten up out of bed after a night debating Jack Daniels instead of Jack Kennedy. <laughs> Kennedy, of course, won, as he knew it was a brawny paper towel spokesperson competition. <laughs> In 1960, each candidate had an eight-minute opening statement. Eight minutes. Kennedy's went something like this. In the election of 1960, this nation is faced with a stock choice. Do you want a president who looks like he could handle Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> or do you want a president whose main claim to fame is that he would be the overwhelming favorite of political cartoonists? <laughs> then 16 long years passed. There were no debates. In two of those three election cycles, Richard Nixon was the GOP nominee, so he wasn't exactly on board. <laughs> Lyndon Johnson, who facially resembled a manatee, <laughs> and sounded like Slim Pickens with a medical marijuana card, <laughs> didn't want anything to do with debates either. Finally, in 1976, a presidential candidate emerged who looked like the top-rated TV news anchor at WSB in Atlanta. His opponent was desperately looking for a game-changer as he had pardoned Kennedy's sweaty punching bag. So debates came back. All the media is interested in are capital P, pivotal, capital M moments. And in 1980, they got a movie actor to run against the Atlanta television news anchor. He provided the media with a definitive presidential debate moment. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? And can you see how considerably taller I am and nicer my hair is? <laughs> now, as a middle-aged man, I am never better off than I was four years ago. <laughs> In 
1984, the movie actor debated the Norwegian bachelor farmer with dark circles under his eyes, Fritz Mondale. Now I am from Minnesota, and I used to do advance work for Fritz when he was vice president. True story. I remember one of his aides said to him, uh, Fritz, uh, we, we have to pick up your game. Uh, we need you to grow your hair out. And Fritz said, people in Minnesota like crappy haircuts. Mondale overwhelmingly won the debate because he was speaking in diagrammable sentences, unlike Reagan, who seemed at the moment to think he was driving down the highway on the California coast. Mondale went on to win exactly one state, the one that liked crappy haircuts. So do debates matter? Let's talk about 2012. In 1960, the debate set consisted of two chairs, two spare lecterns, and two desks. The background was painted a color called Grayscale 5, which perfectly matched Nixon's Grayscale 5 suit, Grayscale 5 tie, and Grayscale 5 complexion. In 2012, the debate sets were more elaborate than Jeopardy. Swirling colors, animated eagles, flapping flags, and lecterns that looked like Star Wars vehicles. They even had names for the contest, like Debating with the Stars, Who Wants to Be a Chief Executive, and Are You Smarter Than Newt Gingrich? There were so many of them, too. It seemed like one was on every three days, and they created about five frontrunners for the GOP in a three-month period, which led people to think that the Republicans had become bipolaritisan. <laughs> we had the Herman Cain boomlet, which elevated a man who made JFK look like St. Thomas Aquinas. We had the Newt Gingrich moment, which ha who had such great family values, he decided to have three of them. We had the Rick Perry era, who wanted to eliminate federal agencies he couldn't even remember. We had the Michelle Bachman experience, a woman who reminded me of a cross between Honey Boo Boo and Margaret Thatcher. This endless series of GOP debates mercifully ended when Governor Glengarry Glen Romney, coffee is for closers, finally captured the nomination. Then we were faced with what we all had been waiting for, the televised confrontation between Romney of 2012, the Romney of 2008, the Romney of 1994, and President Obama. This was the first year I can recall where the debate moderators seemed to get more attention than the presidential candidates. I now have my autographed Martha Raddatz poster where I kept my Farrah poster. In the first debate, Governor Romney came armed with a new set of debate rules of engagement. Pretend like you're appearing on Bill O'Reilly. A catatonic President Obama gave the faint impression that he was making a guest appearance on Celebrity Rehab. When Romney, who apparently consumed a can of Red State Bull, that's why they pay me the big bucks began charging at Obama, the president scowled like he was enduring a series of Yo Mama jokes. <laughs> the second debate was the so-called town hall format, which meant that real people could ask questions about boxers or briefs, which is what happened in the 1996 Dole-Clinton debate. Dole said, depends. <laughs> Romney said, both. This time, President Obama came prepared and decided to stick to only five milligrams of Ambien. <laughs> Governor Romney was combative and threatened Candy Crowley with a hostile takeover of CNN by Bain Capital. <laughs> the third debate was focused on foreign policy, and President Obama took the opportunity to explain to Governor Romney that submarines were big, black, pressurized underwater warships and that he had killed, barbecued, and eaten Osama bin Laden, accompanied by a nice Chianti and fava beans. <laughs> Throughout these three encounters, Romney sported two facial expressions that I sadly cannot duplicate over the radio. But one was a squinty fixed grin that said, I want you to buy the undercoating. <laughs> the other was a faux beatific glare that said, I am going to blackball you when your name comes up for membership at my country club. <laughs> Obama's facial expressions ranged from a faint smile that conveyed the feeling that his opponent got a combined 990 math verbal SAT score. 
His other expression was a Mr. Spock frowny face that said, I've given orders to SEAL Team 6 to come give you a candy gram. <laughs> there were also vice presidential debates which have frequently generated a lot of news and very few votes. For example, Senator Lloyd Benson in 1988 informed Senator Dan Quayle that he wasn't Jack Kennedy. When Quayle was elected vice president, he let Benson know that he was not Lyndon Johnson. When Vice President Biden debated Representative Paul Ryan, he could barely contain his dentures. <laughs> Ryan had the wide-eyed, long, lush lashes, which he would bat at Biden periodically to shield his eyes from the glare of the Vice President's $50,000 porcelain crowns. <laughs> I'm afraid of what future presidential debates might turn into. Survivor, Pennsylvania Avenue. Or in the cheapest sort of pandering, they might be held on live wire. Thank you. That was political cartoonist Jack Oman, who will be the political cartoonist for the Sacramento Bee starting in January of 2013. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. Gobble, gobble. It's that time of year again. Time to pick up a turkey and get a fantastic photo with your family. I'm Peg Tut, and you can find that and more at my new all-weather Peg Tut's Turkey Farm and Photography Exposium. Stan Gettys, recently acquitted brother of photographer Ann Gettys, will create fantastical photo times by placing your family members inside fun hollowed-out objects like Einstein's head, the belly of a zebra, or the engine block of a 67 Corvette Stingray. Wow! Choose from one of our classic backgrounds. Blue, frosted blue, beige, frosted beige, or laser alley. Are you a stocky family? All photos come in landscape format. <laughs> Do you have a boring pet? We could spice it up with a fun costume, a wig in the style of any of the US first ladies. Hello, Puggles Van Buren. But don't forget, we're also Dundee County's largest free reign turkey farm. We have over 2,000 plump and terrified birds waiting to be a Thanksgiving meal. Bring one over to Bill Dickey in the skinning pit. He'll tastefully remove the head and unsightly feathers from your turkey feast. For an additional fee, your smallest child can swing the ax him or herself. That's fun for the whole family. At Peg Tuts, you will literally get to kill two birds with one stone or one giant ax wielded by Bill Dickey. That's Peg Tut's Turkey Farm and Photography Exposium, just off Highway 27 across from Romance Lost and Found at the new Salazar's Everyday Cobras and Pythons 2 and also Vipers. Come to Peg Tut's Photography Exposium, get your family picture and a lesson about the unavoidability of death. So Cheryl Strait's having a good year. In March, she released Wild, a memoir of her 1,100-mile solo walk along the Pacific Crest Trail. It became a number one New York Times bestseller. It was chosen by Oprah to restart her book club. The film rights were bought by Reese Witherspoon, and Nick Hornby will adapt it for the screen. But before all of this, back in 2010, Cheryl agreed to write an advice column for the Rumpus, literary website under the pseudonym Dear Sugar. Her first column was a short, pithy, yet thoughtful response, and then she started telling stories of her own life, and when one column received 75,000 hits in a week, she knew that she had hit a nerve. People were reading sugar at work and sobbing into their lattes. It turned out a forthcoming, wise, funny, and flawed friend was just exactly what the whole world was looking for. Cheryl came out as Dear Sugar on Valentine's Day, and her book, Tiny Beautiful Things, a collection of Dear Sugar columns, was published this summer. Here for her 475th interview this year, please welcome Cheryl Strait. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. 
It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So I wanted to talk about um, when you initially took over as Sugar. Author Steve Almond was Sugar prior to you. And he had read something that you'd written and he'd met you briefly and he offered this to you. And you, you've said that you somewhat hesitantly took it. What were you worried about? Well, first of all, it didn't pay anything. <laughs> it had no following. Nobody... I wouldn't get to say that I'd written it because it was anonymous. And who am I to give anyone advice? Right. So there were, that was just all of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's, yeah. it's, of course you took this right. job. Right. Exactly. It was, it, was, it, it was my kind of gig. Right. Um, so, but, you know, and so, yeah, it was a really bad idea. Um, <laughs> but many of the best things have come, in my life at least, from, from bad ideas. Well, and uh, I read in an interview that, that you essentially just felt good when you thought about doing it. That's right. I, I, I sort of didn't realize I was taking the advice I would go on to give thousands of others, and that is to trust your gut. And that's where I felt that. I really had that feeling inside of me. When, when I thought of this idea of writing this advice column, there was really a kind of opening inside of me. And... Once I thought about it, you know, of course, as a writer, books, stories, poems, essays, they have been my greatest consolation. And so I thought, well, that's what I have to offer, actually. That's what any writer has to offer the world is, uh, you know, I've spent all of these years really pondering the human condition, really trying to think about not just uh, the self that we reveal to the world, but, but the actual self that we, I think, conceal often. And so when people are writing me letters, that's the self from which they're writing, really. They're saying, look, this is my deep, deepest secret or my deepest sorrow. Here are the ways that how I feel contradicts the way I live. And so I was really, as an advice columnist, just being pre presented with the situations that I've grappled with on the page for years and years. Well, what do you think that f for people is the benefit of... of asking someone this question when they, they don't, you don't know them, you don't know their whole story, you just know this tiny little snippet. What do you think the benefit of that is? Well, I think that it's, it's almost like the reason we go to therapy, right? Because you get to talk to somebody who's a presumably neutral figure, and you can say anything to that person, and they're hopefully not going to judge you or condemn you or do any of the things that people do kind of out in the world. But what's been so interesting to me as Sugar so many therapists have talked to me or written to me. And, and they, what, what, what's interesting is what they say to me is, you get to do what I, what I can't do as a therapist. Right. They have to stay objective. They have to stay objective. And they can't do that thing where they're uh, you know, telling stories from their own lives or saying, yeah, this is completely um, you know, complicated for me too. Mm -hmm. And they don't bring themselves into the story the way that I do as Sugar. And so many of them have written to me and really um, started using the Sugar column in their practice. That's great. They'll sit there and read out loud a letter to their client. It's really fascinating. Well, it seems like there's, that's certainly been the rule for, for advice columns. And it's interesting, to, if, you, if you go to the Rumpus, you can actually read your columns from when you very first started. And when you very first started, it felt like you were trying to ease from Steve Almond, who had been funny and, um, and sort of pithy, and, uh, and sort of move into yourself that's a little right. bit. You know, and then at one point, I think it was your 12th column, you just sort of dropped a bomb. You know, you told a really intensely personal story. Did you, at the time, was that a, a conscious choice to just change the way that you did it? I think it was a slow evolution. And first, I want to say, it's true you could go to the Rumpus and read all my columns, but why would you do that when you could buy tiny, beautiful things? It's, it, <laughs> duh! I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's so much easier to have it in the book. It's right there. Oh, yeah. But, you know, what happened is... <laughs> that's right. What, what was really the evolution was... And, and this was interesting, too, because usually as a writer, I'm just all alone in my room. And, you know, I, I, I wrote Wild. I didn't know what was going to happen to Wild once it was in the world. I created the whole thing, you know, essentially by myself and then set it off, you know, to, to see. And... Sugar was different. It was each week I would 
I would almost always write the column within the 24 hours that it was went live on the website. And then immediately, within a few minutes, I would start to see people tweeting about it or posting about it on Facebook or writing comments on the website. So I had this incredibly interactive relationship with my readers. And so when I started to tell stories about my life, I was fearful that they would think, oh, who is this woman just sort of hijacking the question? Because I wasn't really, that wasn't my intention. I wasn't interested in telling a story about myself for the sake of telling a story about myself. I was really interested in using story as illumination, as allowing this, uh, as a way of helping this, this letter, letter writer see his or her problem more clearly. And so every time I did that, I got such a great response that you're right, I got braver and braver and braver. And I started writing things, uh, really the deepest, darkest things about myself that I've ever written. Well, and do you think that had you not had, certainly there was a lot of intensely personal stuff in Wild, but do you think that had you not had that anonymity from the outset, do you think it would have taken a lot longer for you to tell those stories? I don't. I never wrote it from the perspective of anonymity. I always knew when I took it on, I knew I was going to be anonymous for some time, but I knew that I would reveal my identity someday. And so everything I wrote, I wrote as Cheryl Strait, even though readers were reading me as Sugar. And also, you know, in Wild, I certainly think one word to describe that book would be candid. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't withhold in that book. Um, so it wasn't as if to me that sugar, you know, in sugar I had great license or something. It was just an, it was an extension of what I was already doing. And I'd finished the first draft of Wild uh, when I took on the, the Dear Sugar column. And so these two books were sort of being written at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, with, yeah, with some of the same stories. And um, it, it's interesting. Sugar is incredibly sweet. Sugar calls all of her readers sweet pea. Um, nice. and, and is incredibly, Steve Allman calls it radical empathy. The, the, the type of writing that Sugar does. Um, and it, it does feel like acceptance, but at the same time, it's not unconditional from Sugar. And, um, in right, Sugar's sort of a hard ass sometimes. She is. Are we allowed when to say it on, that on the radio? <laughs> I, I believe that you can, yeah. When it's appropriate, she definitely is. Mm -hmm. um, there was an article that Elizabeth Greenwood wrote in The Atlantic, and it was actually about Wild, but I think it applies to Sugar. Um, and she was comparing Wild to Eat, Pray, Love. And she said, Eat, Pray, Love's undertone is that you deserve to be happy. Wild's is that you have to earn it. Um, in what ways do you think that people earn their happiness? By taking responsibility for the people they are, essentially. You know, we've, uh, I mean, and this isn't to say that, uh, you know, one should just let people off the hook who have wronged you, for example, but ultimately right. we all have to come to terms with uh, our past, our childhoods, our, and our futures. You know, I, I think that there is this essential um, core belief that I have that has to do with self-sufficiency. You know, that you have to, that you have to get to the places that you want to go um, emotionally, professionally, uh, when it comes to your education, your relationships, and really every aspect of your life, that ultimately it's up to you. And I think that Sugar says that over and over, is that there's a great amount of, of sorrow to be had about things that have prevented people from getting those places. But, you know, essentially the choice we have, in Wild I write about this a lot, is the choice you have is just to uh, stay there or walk back to where you had been or to move forward in the direction of your intentions. And so Sugar, I'm always trying to tell people to, to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted, to, I wanted to have you read a, a little bit of it before, before you go. Um, ideally, um, I'd love to hear some of Tiny Beautiful Things. Okay. That's so, my favorite one. Yeah. Okay. So the title, <laughs> the title column is Tiny, Tiny Beautiful Things. And um, I'm going to just read a, a somewhat abbreviated version of it for time. Dear Sugar, I read your column religiously. I'm 22. From what I can tell by your writing, you're in your early 40s. <laughs> my question is short and sweet. What would you tell your 20-something self if you could talk to her now? Love Seeking Wisdom. Dear Seeking Wisdom, stop worrying about whether you're fat. You're not fat. Or rather, you're sometimes a little bit fat, but who gives a 
there is nothing more boring and fruitless than a woman lamenting the fact that her stomach is round. Feed yourself, literally. The sort of people worthy of your love will love you more for this, sweet pea. In the middle of the night, in the middle of your 20s, when your best woman friend crawls naked into your bed, straddles you, and says, you should run away from me before I devour you. Believe her. <laughs> You've all had that friend too, yeah. You are not a terrible person for wanting to break up with someone you love. You don't need a reason to leave. Wanting to leave is enough. Leaving doesn't mean you're incapable of real love or that you'll never love anyone else again. It doesn't mean you're morally bankrupt or psychologically demented or a nymphomaniac. It means you wish to change the terms of one particular relationship. That's all. Be brave enough to break your own heart. There are some things you can't understand yet. Your life will be a great and continuous unfolding. It's good you've worked hard to resolve childhood issues while, you're, while in your 20s. But understand that what you resolve will need to be resolved again and again. <laughs> you will come to know things that can only be known with the wisdom of age and the grace of years. Most of those things will have to do with forgiveness. Don't lament so much how your career is going to turn out. You don't have a career. <laughs> you have a life. Do the work. Keep the faith. Be true blue. You're a writer because you write. Keep writing and quit your bitching. Your book has a birthday. You don't know what it is yet. You cannot convince people to love you. This is an absolute rule. No one will ever give you love because you want him or her to give it. Real love moves freely in both directions. Don't waste your time on anything else. Most things will be okay eventually, but not everything will be. Sometimes you'll put up a good fight and lose. Sometimes you'll hold on really hard and realize there is no choice but to let go. Acceptance is a small, quiet room. One hot afternoon during the era in which you've gotten yourself ridiculously tangled up with heroin, you will be riding the bus and thinking what a worthless piece of crap you are when a little girl will get on the bus holding the strings of two purple balloons. She'll offer you one of the balloons, but you won't take it because you believe you no longer have a right to such tiny, beautiful things. You're wrong. You do. Your assumptions about the lives of others are in direct relation to your naive pomposity. Many people you believe to be rich are not rich. Many people you think have it easy worked hard for what they got. Many people who seem to be gliding right along have suffered and are suffering. Many people who appear to you to be old and stupidly saddled down with kids and cars and houses were once every bit as hip and pompous as you. When you meet a man in the doorway of a Mexican restaurant who later kisses you while explaining that this kiss doesn't mean anything, because much as he likes you, he's not interested in having a relationship with you or anyone right now, just laugh and kiss him back. Your daughter will have his sense of humor. <laughs> Your son will have his eyes. The useless days will add up to something. The waitressing jobs, the writing in your journal, the long meandering walks, the reading poetry and story collections and novels and dead people's diaries and wondering about sex and God and whether you should shave under your arms or not. These things are your becoming. One Christmas at the very beginning of your 20s, when your mother gives you a warm coat that she saved for months to buy, don't look at her skeptically after she tells you she thought the coat was perfect for you. Don't hold it up and say it's longer than you like your coats to be and too puffy and possibly even too warm. Your mother will be dead by spring. That coat will be the last gift she gave you. 
you will regret the small thing you didn't say for the rest of your life. Say thank you, sugar. You're listening to Livewire. Thank you. I'm out with Cheryl Strait, reading from Tiny Beautiful Things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, I wasn't affected by it at all, but <laughs> I... <laughs> Um, just one last question. You know, it's been, it's been a huge year for you with a lot of change. And um, is, there, is there anything that you would like to ask for me, ask advice about? <laughs> that I can help you with? Because I have a must-off together. <laughs> See, now that I have not been asked yet. You, you have asked, you know, usually people want to ask me for advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but no, nobody's asked me to ask. I, I need so much help. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone keeps assuming, because it has been a crazy year, that suddenly I, I'm not me anymore, that I have mm -hmm. this other life. Uh -huh. And as if, you know, we suddenly like live in a castle, you know, with a mm -hmm. moat. And so we're, my, we're looking for a castle with a moat here in Portland, <laughs> if, you, if you can find one. No, but um, yeah, there's... there's um, I don't even know what to, sense Where to, to make start? it this year. Yeah, so I, I need, I, we need to go on a retreat, and you can tell me everything. Okay. Okay? <laughs> I will. Well, um, the book is beautiful. The book is Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar. The author is Cheryl Strayed. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. That was Cheryl Strayed. Her book is Tiny Beautiful Things. More information at CherylStrayed.com. And now, because we care about people and their needs and the earth and things, it's time to answer our burning listener questions. Science, pop culture, religion, what you had for breakfast, oatmeal and a banana, right? Eerie. We have a mix of questions from Twitter and Facebook and right here in the theater at this very moment. And those questions will be answered honestly and almost accurately by our cast and guests in a segment we like to call Dear Livewire. Libiola writes, If plaid was stripes, would stripes be plaid? Well, I don't like to jump into these politically charged topics, but we all know that plaids and stripes have hated each other for centuries. But frankly, I'm just an actor and not qualified to answer these questions. Thank you. Sylvia Glazier asks, what is a star that doesn't shine? Gary Busey. <laughs> Thomas asks, if you could forget one thing, what would it be? Home bikini wax. Thank you so much. Great job, you guys, on Dear Livewire. Dear Livewire is brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewery, whose seasonal ale, Snow Day Winter Ale, is hoppy with subtle chocolate and caramel flavors. It's like that cup of hot cocoa after a long day of building snowmen. Only it's not cocoa, it's beer. And you're just... You're eating the marshmallows out of the bag because you're a grown-up and you can do whatever you want now. More information can be found at newbelgium.com. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like a party that happens inside your headphones with tiny little people and little pigs in blankets and other microscopic crudité. We'll be right back. <laughs>
Tonight's live wire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, featuring 25 different varieties of apples this month. Apples are rich in antioxidants, but are normally high up in trees, and you can't get them without a ladder or a long stick. Whole Foods solves that problem by working with regional harvesters to provide you with fresh local produce, all at a reasonable distance from the ground. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Jens Lechman. It's a young Friday night And I'm filled up to the brim With an old, old feeling That can't be turned into art But maybe a ladder Of resignation if you frame it I left it burning on your wall She asks you what's wrong You say nothing It's nothing Baby, what's wrong You say nothing It's nothing it's nothing at all It's just the pressure with which you hold up. It's really nothing at all It's just some dandruff on your shoulder It's just that every moment Casts a shadow a sadness of it's not being something else other than itself. She asks you what's wrong. You say nothing. It's nothing. Baby, what's wrong? You say nothing, it's nothing It's nothing It's nothing Support for this program comes from Cabot Laboratories, global leaders in healthcare research and discovery, online at cabotlab.com. From the James Cameron Foundation, sacrificing writing for special effects 
since 1997 <laughs> from the Elaine and Thomas Mickelson Foundation, getting chimpanzees drunk and filming them fall off trees for the purpose of amusing the rich. Online at heylookatthatstupidmonkey.org from Little Chocolate Donuts. You keep buying them and we'll keep making them on convenience store shelves since like forever. From Wesley Snipes. Thanks, Wesley. From Cyberdyne Industries, illegally developing an army of robot killing machines that will eventually destroy us all. Online at nothingtoworryabout.org. From the Chatsworth T. Mullaney Foundation, abducting high school bullies and dropping them off naked in the slums of Mumbai since 2003. From Giuseppe Giambuca's racist Italian ristorante, maintaining Italian-American stereotypes since 1955. Online at omaron.com. From the John P. and Catherine T. McIntyre Foundation, those fat cats give to everyone. And from the Abe Vigoda Preservation Society, maintaining signs of life in actor Abe Vigoda through science and witchcraft since 1982. And from listeners like you. Sean McGrath, everybody. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, house poet Scott Poole has been sitting patiently in our audience, just watching and listening and taking everything in and writing furiously to sum up the lessons that he has heard in the last hour. So please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight if I ever want to give someone advice, I should always remember that no one gives a flying frisbee what a poet thinks you should do with your life. (laughs) The simple fact that you've chosen to spend your life as a poet proves you shouldn't be giving anyone advice anywhere (laughs) under any dire, dire circumstances. Maybe that's why advice ended up in columns. If we didn't have advice columns, it would have to come from some other horrible place. Advice would always find you, good and bad. It'd probably even grow out of your house plants if it had to. Jens Lechman makes me want to dance about the living room in the afternoon wearing a pea coat and a pair of cowboy boots with an attitude of utter indifference eating up the afternoon like a slice of metaphorical fluffy yawny cake playing a pan flute of sugar in my mouth. And if I did this, this is when my houseplant would either clap its leaves together in sincere appreciation or lean over like it was looking for a place to throw up, then die on the carpet in front of me. So maybe it is best that advice stay in columns and not in houseplants, or the mouth of your mother as she accidentally spits a tooth across the Thanksgiving table and into the cranberry sauce in front of you. So take my advice, just read Cheryl Strayed, America's hottest advice columnist, Many of the best things in my life have come from really bad ideas. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Jack Oman, Cheryl Strayed, and Jens Lechman. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hameister, performers Ryan McCluskey, Chris Harder, and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Frayne Masters. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauck. 
Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.